We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela, Dei Mater Alma, Ad Semper Virgo, Felix Hello and welcome. My name is David Fagerberg. I'm a uh, retired professor in the Theology Department at the University of Notre Dame. Last summer I exchanged department meetings and grading papers for playdates with my grandchildren. And uh, so far so good. I'm enjoying myself. But now I am sit in an uh, office in my home, writing in the morning, reading in the afternoon, when we're not playing with the kids. A few years ago I published a book titled uh, On Liturgical Asceticism, and it caught the eye of Steve Cunningham, who asked me if I would do an interview about the book. I said, maybe. I'm not very good at interviews. The reason somebody becomes an academic is so that you've got three hours to prepare for a half-hour conversation. And every interview I've tried so far, uh, I always think of what I want to say uh, two days later. Uh, so I counter-proposed to him that I could uh, explain uh, some of the material in the book. I don't know for sure what he thought about that. I imagined his eyes uh, rolling back in his head, worrying about a big talking head of a professor reading out of his book, and then asceticism is important for the following reasons. That would be kind of a tedious exercise. But I said, no, 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 I've got uh, some other options for the past 15 of my years uh, as a teacher. I've used a program called OneNote, and OneNote lets me draw on the screen and then point to things and un yeah, emphasize things. And I could uh, give some um, coverage of the content of the book in this way. And he said, well, let's try it. So I think of this as my uh, audition tape. An actor sends it off to Hollywood. Uh, I'm sens sending this up to Census Fidelium uh, to see how it uh, works out. We'll give it a try. A little bit of background on the work. The uh, two people that influenced me most in my understanding of liturgical theology were Father Alexander Schmemann, an Orthodox theologian at St. Vladimir's Seminary, and maybe someday I'll get to do a, a video uh, where I can uh, pay homage to him and what he uh, gave me. And the second was uh, Aidan Kavanaugh, whose book on liturgical theology was in process about the time that I was uh, in graduate school with him. 
He was a acting academic dean when I arrived for my master's program, and I begged him for a directed readings since he wasn't teaching any regular classes, and he finally relented and said he would do it if we read everything we could find by Alexander Schmemann. So uh, he, uh, Catholic Benedictine, and Schmemann, an Orthodox at uh, St. Vladimir's, uh, made this influence of liturgical theology on me. Well, coming out of that uh, time period was his book on liturgical theology, and I heard him deliver the lectures in person, and I desperately wanted a copy, so I asked if uh, I could have it. And he said, well, I do need somebody to type the manuscript for the publisher back in the days before computers. I put it on a computer, but he didn't uh, use typewriter. So he gave me a little uh, packet of legal pads, the uh, yellow uh, oversized lawyer pads, and uh, asked me to transcribe it. I wish that I'd had the presence of mind to photocopy it and just have it for a uh, memory, uh, but I didn't. But in my uh, brain, I've got a picture of those pages of uh, fountain pen on the page. No uh, insertions, no cross-offs, uh, just like he sat down and wrote it. He told me once that he just tries to write three pages a day, and I believe that he probably did just write it down. Well, I went on my way, uh, did my uh, dissertation, turned it into a, a second edition book, and started thinking about the importance of asceticism to liturgy. Then, after some years had passed, and I'd already published uh, my second volume, Theologia Prima, I used Kavanaugh's book in a summer course, and lo and behold, he talks about asceticism. It's another example of the uh, professors planting a seed in the brain which doesn't flower for some years, but uh, there it was. I was uh, shocked to uh, read it. So I'm going to start by um, making some mention of what Kavanaugh says and thinks. The author takes Christian asceticism seriously, far from being something esoteric to Christianity. Asceticism is native to the gospel and is required of all. Monks would do asceticism, but apparently he thinks all Christians would also. Monks uh, take a vow and are in the desert. They leave the world some way or another. Uh, all the baptized, well, the monks are baptized too. All the baptized are required to practice an asceticism uh, where they are, I guess, uh, in the world, if not out of the world. My uh, attempt to be clever about that has been to say that it was um, perfected in the sands of the desert, but its uh, origin is in the waters of the font. Sand and water, dry and wet, monastic, out of the world, secular Christian, in the world. It generated, in that same process, by which living the gospel began to take on an ecclesial form. 
Monasticism was not the creation of medieval bishops, but of early Christian lay people, and it flowed directly into the Christian life out of Jewish prophetic asceticism. One cannot study Christianity without taking monasticism into account. One cannot live as a Christian without practicing gospel asceticism, which monasticism is meant to exemplify and support. A Christian need not be a monk or a nun, but every monk or nun is a crucial sort of Christian. There have been too many of these people for their witness not to have considerable theological importance. I should say that when I use the word monk, I mean both uh, men and women. I keep uh, some individual icons, but I have two um, uh, collection icons of uh, women ascetics in the desert, uh, just to uh, keep that in my uh, memory. Back to Kavanaugh. The idea that a theologian is a person who prays is intended, he thinks, to have a, a particular um, point of emphasis. It's not endowing a, sec a doxological quality on the second-order activity of theology, meaning the uh, purpose of this phrase doesn't mean that when I go to the library and I write my articles, I should be um, pausing for a, a moment of prayer and glorification of God. I hope I do, but that's not what the dictum means. It, in fact, confers a theological quality on the first-order activity of people at worship. So it's involved with that first-order activity a theologia prima. And that's how the asceticism gets into my notion of um, uh, liturgical theology. The theologos in this Eastern dictum is not the scholar in his study, but the ascetic in his cell. And the theologia implied is not secondary theological reasoning, but the contemplation at the highest level. My language, uh, liturgical asceticism, does not begin in the card catalog. It begins with prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Theology, as it's being defined in this world, is not just a matter of university stuff, important as that is. It's the result of an ascetical formation of a person. Such a person is one whose life is suffused with the liturgia of a cosmos restored to communion with its Trinitarian source. Theology is the contemplation of God in and for his own sake. So liturgy, theology, and asceticism, Greek word ascesis, these three are connected in a way. And that's what's um, my intention of uh, treating inside here. For the life of orthodoxia, like a life of health, requires constant discipline in its need to sustain normality, the way a jeweler requires fire and acid to purify his precious metals. The ascetic then makes a fundamental contribution to Christian orthodoxia as a life of cosmic normality. Ortho, meaning uh, straight, orthodontists, 
straighten teeth, orthopedics, straighten bones. Docaine is probably the uh, root of the second part of the word, which means a um, teaching, but it's not impossible uh, to connect it with the idea of uh, doxa, which means to uh, give glory, giving right glory. is Christian orthodoxia, and it's a life of cosmic normality. It's not then a matter of education or good works that the ascetic is giving, but a uh, witness to this orthodoxia. This is a life expected of every one of the baptized. The ultimate end is the same supreme beatitude. It's a life. Asceticism is a lifestyle, to use a word from my childhood in the 60s, that all the baptized share. And the ascetic in this is nothing more than a virtuoso who serves a whole community as an exemplar, an exemplar of it, the community, the church's own life. The ascetic is simply a stunningly normal person. What a great way to start ideas thinking about asceticism. A stunningly normal person who stands in constant witness to the normality of Christian orthodoxia, liturgy, worship, doctrine, dogma, in a world that's been flawed into abnormality by human choice. So as I say, I want to connect uh, these three words in various ways. Liturgical theology was the title of one book. Liturgical Ascesis Asceticism is the title of this book. Why put liturgical in front of the word asceticism? Uh, I'll answer the question by uh, taking a, a specific ascetical practice. Let's try a uh, practice of fasting. Would there be such a thing as liturgical fasting? People fast for all kinds of reasons, for health reasons, if your cholesterol is too high, medical reasons before a blood test, vanity sometimes leads somebody to fast like the magazines encourage, athletic purposes, I know the coach makes the um, football players at Notre Dame live on a special diet for in the two weeks they come back to campus early to prepare for the season, maybe for moral reasons, whatever your um, uh, logic is, and also for religious reasons. All religions use fasting as a tool. I have to acknowledge the um, uh, fasting restraint from food that uh, is a result sometimes of depression or anorexia, but wait a minute. None of these would be like liturgical fasting. They wouldn't be fasting done for liturgical reasons. Just as the fast of the hospital patient is different from the fast of the supermodel by reason of motive and end, so too the liturgical fast is different from all other fasts by its purpose and telos. Why do this fasting? Why do this asceticism? If it's for liturgical reasons and liturgical purpose and towards a liturgical end, then it seems to me that it uh, deserves the name uh, liturgical asceticism. Where 
was this liturgical asceticism perfected? I'm claiming that it's born in the waters of the baptismal font. All Christians are ascetics, though not necessarily of the monastic variety, just like all Christians are theologians, though not necessarily of the um, scholastic academic variety. And all Christians are mystics, though not necessarily of the extraordinary kind. It's perfected in the desert, and that's where we go to meet it. Final quote from Kavanaugh here. By asceticism, one does not mean giving up candy during Lent or flagellants and hair shirts. One means something broader, deeper, and harder, a kind of Zen in the art of maintaining a life of right worship, orthodoxa. And Kavanaugh points out, pointed me, to Evagrius of Pontus, who was the first to synthesize the traditional teachings of Christian asceticism and he called it Theoria, contemplation, pure and simple, and he identified this with prayer. Its result, what flows from it, the fruit, is theology, theologia of the most sublime kind, and its home is a lifetime spent going with the grain of God's creation by grace and effort. So, Kavanaugh says, it's no doubt that Evagrius stands at the fountainhead of Christian commentary, emphasis on commentary. This isn't like Evagrius's theory. It's not the Evagrian uh, teaching. He's trying to synthesize what he learned in the desert. And it's a commentary on the ascetical life, fountainhead for both East and West, Moscow, Constantinople, Monte Cassino, Benedictines, and Rome, East and West. Here's Evagrius' first trip to the desert. He went to Skeet, and a certain father said to him, Speak. He went to Skeet, and to a certain father, he said to him, Speak some word whereby I may be able to save myself. The old man said, If you want to be saved, when you go to any man, don't speak before he asks you a question. Evagrius was sorry about this sentence, and he showed regret because he had asked the question, saying, I've read many books. I've read many books, and I cannot accept instruction of this kind. Having profited, he went forth from him. Uh, the story is repeated in another location. Uh, oh, my fathers, I have spoken once, but I will not do it a second time. Evagrius must learn. He must uh, go to the desert in order to listen. From out of the deserts of Egypt and Palestine came lives of the desert fathers and sayings by the desert fathers. There are all sorts of uh, lives available, I uh, mean, reprints now. Uh, a book that contains several of the lives, sometimes a thin um, uh, publication with an uh, individual life. I uh, had moved my office home. I had to give uh, many of the books away, but uh, kept some of them. Here's the uh, lives of the Desert Fathers, and it contains uh, 26 Desert Fathers' lives. Or here's a single life of uh, Blessed Syncletica, a way to divide them. Uh, Harlots of the Desert, lives of um, uh, women. And 
it produced sayings in uh, three languages, and they were organized either thematically or alphabetically. There's a uh, large volume by Wallace Budge that has a uh, histories and sayings of the deserts, and this one is found online. This is uh, Benedict Awards and um, her uh, two translations. The thematic means that the stories are organized around topics. Back in the day before computers, you uh, wrote your term papers with uh, note cards. You put all your quotes on the note cards, set them out on the table in front of you, or put these over here and these over here, while well, some unknown anonymous editor uh, did this and gathered up stories which had to do with progress in perfection or quiet or compunction or self-control. These have never, this book has never been out of print since it uh, got put into play, um, the sayings. Then uh, another editor gathered up sayings by a desert father or about a desert father and organize them alphabetically, but uh, Greek alphabet, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Anthony, Arsenius, Agathon, Amanos, Apollo, Andrew. There's an uh, overlap between these. I've read somewhere what uh, the statistic is. You know, it's just the sort of thing that a master's students would, would uh, do. There's uh, so many uh, sayings, some percent here that are there, some percent that isn't that and not here. Uh, you can find that if you like. It's, um, it's nice reading, both of them. There's a new material in each. What's going on in the desert? Well, my uh, one of my metaphors is to think about it as a controlled environment. Every science student knows that an experiment requires that you remove external factors in order to uh, zero in on the thing you want to study. Does playing music make a plant grow better? We have to give it the same amount of water, the same amount of light, but then in a controlled environment, one gets music, one doesn't. I think of the Desert Fathers also seeking a controlled environment for their experiment, but they remove the external factors by removing themselves from the world. What experiment do they want to perform? It's an experiment on the human heart. So they left city and family and wealth and property, not because they thought these things were bad. They weren't dualists. Mm, red, it's important. Not because they thought these were bad and not to do something which didn't concern everyone else, all the faithful, all the baptized Christians. They went to search for the tranquility required to notice the movements of the heart. Much like you might shut down the noise around you in order to hear a certain sound. All Christians are commanded to be free from the world. Some Christians freed themselves from the world by literally fleeing from it. But the monk left the world in order to serve its transfiguration, not for the purpose of abandoning it. Sometimes there are uh, lines that occur to me that I don't dare write down. Oh, I suppose I shouldn't put it on uh, tape then either. But uh, I've heard about... Um, the old bamboo fishing pole and a kid uh, taking a piece of metal and bending it into the shape of a fish hook 
like you could take a nail and bend it into a shape of a fish hook, or like Christ could take a nail from his crucifixion and in the baptismal font catch converts. He takes them out of the world. But then here's a surprise. Some of them he throws back into the world because they have things to do there. The monastic desert ascetic, the secular worldly ascetic. Uh, let's get out of my brain and onto some uh, better brains. Macarius of Egypt says, If a man is entangled in the things of this world, caught by many shackles, seduced by evil passions, it's very hard for him to recognize that there's another invisible struggle and an inner warfare. But, after detaching himself from visible things and worldly pleasures and beginning to serve God, then he becomes capable of recognizing the nature of this inner struggle, the unseen warfare against the passions. They went into the desert to do an experiment on the heart. Antony said, He who sits alone and is quiet has escaped from three wars, hearing, speaking, and seeing. But there's one thing against which he must constantly fight. The fourth battlefront. His own heart. This is a story about some friends coming to uh, see their friend who chose the monastic life. And they asked what progress he had made. He put some water into a cup and he said, look at the water. And it was cloudy. And they said, so? After a little while, just sit for a little bit, just keep silence. He said again, now look and see how clear the water has become. And when they leaned over the water, they saw their faces as in glass. So it is with a man who lives among men. He does not see his own sins because the water isn't clear. It's in turmoil. It's messy. But when he is at rest, especially in the desert, then he sees his sins. I would always try to uh, catch my uh, freshmen by asking, do you think the monks went into the desert to have an easier time or a harder time? And I could see their little brains flip-flop, flip-flop, back and forth. What well, seems easier because they're away from temptations. Now in the world, I've got a temptation of um, avarice and uh, honors and um, the movies are tempting me and there's a pub on the corner and I could drink, but the monk doesn't have any of those temptations. Then you think about it, and if you'd be alone with the heart, you could become uh, um, jealous over anything. The uh, stories of the monk who just wants to keep one piece of property, his own knife, his own fork. So the monk doesn't go to make it easier on himself. It's a more disciplined place to uh, work. So I'm trying out various terms. Um, desert ascetic and secular ascetics. If the monks appear to live their liturgical asceticism on a larger scale, it's because they live in a land of long shadows. If I um, put this iPad pencil up and the sun was shining right on top of it, it would make hardly no shadow. Then if the sun uh, shone this way, it'd make it slightly longer. And as the sun went down, it'd make it yet longer. Well, against the backdrop of the desert, the shadows get very long. Try it one other way. 
I could put the same amount of water on a plate as in a glass, but it would look taller in the glass, and in the plate it would be um, spread out. John Climacus defines poverty as resignation from care. The monk in the desert does a dramatic resignation of care in order to uh, call it to our minds. But I have a lot of cares that I must resign from. It may be the same amount of asceticism on the plate as in the tall glass. Uh, I'm just thinking out loud. The tradition has always understood the secular Christian and the monk to be related. Pacomius talks about the um, people from the city coming out like bees from a hive to visit the monks in their um, monasteries. Two final quotes, one from Athanasius Picar. In the writings of Basil, there's no strict distinction between the monk and the layman. And for Basil, both have only one name. They're Christians. Like Pacomius, Basil did not recognize the two different states, secular and monastic state of Christian life. In their understanding, the monastic state was only the more perfect way of Christian life to which all Christians are obliged. That leads a uh, writer Paul of Dokomoff to speak about um, secular asceticism as an interiorized monasticism. Prayer, fasting, a reading of scriptures, ascetical discipline are imposed upon all Christians and for the same reason. And that's why the laity develops this interiorized monasticism. And its wisdom consists in assuming while living in the world and precisely because they live in the world, the eschatological maximalism of the monastics, their joyous and impatient expectation of the coming of Christ, the parousia. I'm watching my clock as I go. I think we'll do an introduction to this, and so I was going to make uh, this talk about 40 minutes. If I could uh, talk about Evagrius and the faculties, his uh, anthropology, his understanding of the uh, human person. Then uh, in the second asceticism tape, we could consider the uh, problem and the solution, the malady and the cure. Uh, and this would be a nice division of time. You see uh, down there an icon. It's an icon that a graduate student gave me. He wanted to learn about iconography, so I taught him the theology and symbolism, and at the same time he learned from an iconographer in town uh, the technical skills, how to uh, mix the uh, colors in the egg yolk. The icon he chose, it was his first one, it's pretty good, isn't it? The icon he chose to write was that of Evagrius, and here it is. He chose to um, put saint on there, which was a uh, mistake. Evagrius was declared a heretic uh, a couple of decades after he lived. I've read some of his metaphysics, and uh, they were right in doing so, but his ascetical material was uh, uh, valued and cleared, and it was uh, refined by successive generations, especially Maximus the Confessor and Gregory of Sinai. Um, 
if an Orthodox comes to visit me, I have to put a veil over my icon because uh, he's not a saint. What the student did get right is the saying which was so influential on me from Evagrius. If you are a theologian, you truly pray. If you truly pray, you are a theologian. So just a little something about Evagrian um, way in. I reiterate that this isn't his theory of things. It's that um, he was systematizing what he's uh, discovered in the desert. A um, little bit back about him. This is mentioned in the Palladius's um, history. He was of the Pontic race of the city of Ebora, son of a core bishop, and was ordained lector by St. Basil, bishop of the church at Caesarea. Say, I've heard of Basil before. Then, after the death of St. Basil, the bishop Gregory of Nazianzus ordained him deacon. Say, I've heard of Gregory of Nazianzus. The Cappadocian boys are familiar with um, Evagrius. And then in the great synod at Constantinople, Gregory left him behind to the blessed bishop Nectarius as one skillful in confuting all the heresies, and he flourished in the great city, confuting every heresy with youthful exuberance. A little ironic since he himself uh, was judged heretical later, but uh, what he understood at this point he's doing fine with. Look at his uh, contemporaries then, his death date, the little uh, crosses uh, for the death dates of these people. He dies 399, which makes him a contemporary with Pacomius, who wrote the first Eastern Cenobitic rule, Basil, who wrote the longer rules, Antony, the first monk whose life Athanasius immortalized in uh, his hagiography, Paul, who had fled to the desert a year before Antony, the first monk, was even born. So, okay, first monk means uh, something different than chronologically first. And John Cassian, who was Evagrius' own pupil and who carried the institutes of Egyptian monasticism back home to uh, the West. Uh, we'll tell that story in a little bit more detail in a second. Evagrius takes a typical Greek uh, organization of uh, human faculties, an assessment of the soul. And these three faculties are abilities to think, to uh, desire, and to be uh, stirred up. An intellective faculty, the concupiscible faculty, and the irascible faculty. Concupiscible uh, shouldn't be confused with concupiscence. That's, in the Western tradition, uh, kind of a remainder of uh, original sin. This is just a um, neutral description, uh, intellective, concupiscible, and irascible. By themselves, all the faculties are good. They must be. They're created by God. Faculties are God's creation. Faculties are good. When they become bad, then the faculty is referred to in this tradition as a passion. More than that right here. Well, no, I guess it's right here. Um, C.S. Lewis would use the phrase, uh, if the faculty gets bent, Lewis talks about bent people in his Space Trilogy and in uh, Screwtape. If the faculty is uh, fine, 
it's like a, a perfectly round uh, bicycle wheel and it'll roll down the uh, road without a problem. If it hit a pothole and became badly uh, dented, there, no, <laughs> looks like a old video game character, but if it was a badly dented wheel, uh, then when you were riding that bike, it would uh, lump, lump. Well, let's say it got dented this way. Yeah, that's better. Um, now the the wheel would uh, shake. The faculty wouldn't be working right. Doc, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do that. Doc, my concupiscible faculty is giving me um, trouble. Well, don't engage it. Control it. Keep it under control. So that's the game. That's what we're up to. Evagrius sorts... Uh, eight passions, evil thoughts, logismoi. And he sorts them under the three faculties. Gluttony, lust, and avarice belong to the appetitive, concupiscible faculty. Anger, despondency, and achedia belong to the irascible or uh, to be incensed, to be stirred up faculty. And vainglory and pride belong to the intellective faculty. It's like uh, God is here, uh, we're here. God should be controlling our reason, and the reason should control the concupiscible and the irascible. Uh, Plato's image that uh, reason is the uh, charioteer who holds the reins of two galloping steeds. And here's the picture of sin. When this gets broken, this gets broken. When we're not standing under God in obedience, then inside the person, the macrocosmic problem creates a microcosmic problem. God should control reason. Reason should control your appetites and spirited faculties. And when it does not, the concupiscible becomes covetousness, the irascible becomes anger. It makes sense, doesn't it? It uh, kind of fits. Uh, this is with a tripartite three um, division. You could do it with a Western four division. And in fact, Thomas says it nicely in the Summa. I'm taking this translation from... Um, uh, a book by John Adam Mueller, just because I like the language of it. All the faculties of the soul have been to a certain degree displaced from their proper direction and destination. The displacement, which is called the fall of nature. There are four powers of the soul, and those powers become the conduits of virtue, namely reason, where is there is recognition, will, justice, exertion, courage, temperance, this desire, temperance. Four powers of the soul. The soul has the power to desire. It has the power to exert itself. And these uh, virtues should come out of it. But if something is uh, diverted from its bearing, then things go wrong. If reason is diverted from its bearing towards the truth, you have the wound of ignorance. Will, diverted from the good, wickedness. 
Exertion diverted from what is uh, arduous, frailty. Desire from pleasure, concupiscence. If it's not controlled, then the uh, faculty goes wrong. I have to repeat it, no faculty is wrong, but the way in which we use the faculty can go bad. Uh, I tried um, describing it this way to my um, undergrads. No problem with money, sex, or beer is a problem with avarice, lust, gluttony, if you like, uh, intemperance, but I like the gluttony word. The problem does not lie with money, sex, or beer, and that's why the asceticism we're talking about is not dualism, it's not anti-matter, anti-body. Money, sex, and beer are goods and gifts from God. There is a problem with avarice, lust, and gluttony. It's a spiritual problem. Asceticism is concerned with an interior spiritual struggle. That's the where the warfare takes place. This is from uh, Maximus, the confessor. A healthy soul is a soul moved reasonably when its concupiscible element is qualified by self-mastery. The irascible element cleaves to love and turns away from hate. And the rational element lives with God through prayer and spiritual contemplation. That's a good health report. Go for your annual Lenten checkup and see how the concupiscible, irascible, and rational elements are um, operating. An unhealthy state is when passionate thoughts, what um, Evagrius called the logismoi, we're coming to that in the next um, video, when passionate thoughts either excite the concupiscible, disturb the irascible, or darken the rational element. So I repeat, here's his um, batch again. Thomas Spidlick is a, uh, oh, he's died recently, I mean, a couple of years back, um, Byzantine Catholic and writes, for the Eastern Fathers, the passions could be neither good nor indifferent. I suppose there's a rare case in which um, the word passion has been used in a neutral sort of a way. In the West, it can be all the time. In the West, passion means, I think, uh, basically a, a strong feeling. You could have a passion for art, or you could uh, kill someone in a fit of passion just means like a strong feeling. But in the East, the passion means um, distorted in 98% of the time. The soul is by nature the image of God, and the result of sin is that the soul has been cloaked with his various passions. And the aim of praxis is to strip the soul of these pathae. Praxis, discipline, 
the aim of the uh, asceticism, I was writing, coloring outside the lines, I'm sorry, I was writing outside the screen recorder. The purpose of the practice, praxis or discipline is to strip the soul of these pathé passions. In some Greek words, not all of them, but in some Greek words, if you put the uh, letter alpha in front of it, it means uh, not, non, it's a negation. And this gives us the root of the word apatheia, which doesn't mean apathy, listlessness. Apatheia means dispassion, not passionate. I forbid my uh, undergrad students to use the word apathy once we make this distinction. Apatheia is the goal. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's a um, temporary goal. It's a, it's a starting point goal. More on that too. So here's Evagrius's list. Uh, this is his uh, shorthand statement of it, and look how he ends it. It's not in our power to determine whether we are disturbed by these thoughts. The logismoi come. It is up to us to decide whether they are to linger within us or not, and whether they are to stir up our passions. How does the passion Sorry, no. How does the thought, the logismoi, become a um, passion? And even more importantly, how can we fix it? Uh, that's what I want to um, talk about uh, in the next one. How bad is it? Evagrius did these eight and organized them around the three faculties. Here's John of Damascus organizing uh, a list of passions around uh, the three faculties, and he uses a slightly longer list. This is the faculty. This is the passion. This is a glimpse of the cure. Unbelief, heresy, folly, blasphemy, and gratitude. These are cured through unwavering faith in God and in the true undeviating and orthodox teaching through the continual study of the utterances of the Spirit and ceaseless prayer and offering of thanks to God. Heartlessness, hatred, lack of compassion, rancor, envy, these are cured by deep sympathy for one's fellow men, love, gentleness, brotherly affection, compassion. And the desiring aspect, they're familiar enough, fasting, self-control, hardship, shedding of possessions if it need be, distribution to the poor, That was John of Damascus' list. Here's a list from Peter of Damascus that I found when I was reading Philokaliots in Volume 3. And here's a list of the virtues. There they go. This is what we're after. Uh, the the uh, words are scrolling by like the um, uh, list of actors at the end of a movie cast of thousands. Well, not thousands. He comes up with 228 virtues. Then, you knew he'd do it. He gives a list of the passions. 
when I first uh, started reading about this ascetical material and the vices and virtues, I wanted to write back for a refund of my tuition for some of my uh, coursework. Uh, how come I didn't have courses on this? Um, I guess I didn't seek them out. But this looks like it's really uh, asking, investigating what the um, character of a human being is like. And these are the passions which I have found named in the Holy Scripture. Uh-oh. We're outnumbered. 298 passions, 228 virtues. We're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to discipline ourselves. We're going to have to engage in some esquisis. Next video.